This evening we welcome you to worship, and our call to worship this evening comes from Psalm 86, verses 4 and 5. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Please turn with me in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll begin reading at verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of our God. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise... Sorry. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And when ye come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. 
So far, the reading of God's faithful and instructive word. Dear church family, please turn with me in the back of the Psalters to page 62, to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 30. Page 62, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 30. Questions 80, we will read questions 80 through 82. This is the third Lord's Day on the Lord's Supper and the concluding Lord's Day. Question 80. What, is, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross. And that we, by the Holy Ghost, are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will be there, worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests, and further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass, at bottom, is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Question 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened, and their lives more holy, But hypocrites, and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Question 82. Are they also to be admitted to to this supper who by by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No. For by this, the covenant of God would be profaned, and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. And therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven, till they they show amendment of life. Over the past several Lord's Days, we've been considering the Lord's Supper from the, from the Heidelberg Catechism. In the previous two Lord's Days, we've, we've heard described to us and from the Word of God the, the nature and the meaning of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's a memorial feast. A feast that the Lord has given for the strengthening of faith. It's, it's a feast by where, where we witness once again in, in visible form 
the, the, the bread and wine which point us to the body and blood of Christ. It's a, a covenanting feast where the Lord promises to be the God of his people, to forgive their sins, that he has forgiven them. It's a love feast where the Lord displays for us again and again, as he calls us to do this often in remembrance of him, his love for his church. It's a feast where we remember, where we reflect, where we even declare by coming who the Lord Jesus Christ is for us and for what he has done for us, how he has broken, had his body broken as he hung on the cross and and shed his blood so that he could wash away all our sin. But yet, as we heard last week, Satan, Satan has used even these, the elements of the supper to, to, and has twisted them to create division within the church, within the world, concerning what these elements mean. He's distorted the very purpose and nature of the sacrament so that we miss the mark for why our Savior has given this feast to his church. And this was highlighted in question 80. In particular, as we consider those differences between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Church's Mass, which was addressed in part last week. And so this week we're going to come particularly to questions 81 and 82, where our catechism addresses one final but an important question. Who is the Lord's Supper for? When our Lord Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, who is this command? To whom does it go out to? Who is being instructed there to do this in remembrance of me? Who is called to come and to partake and to remember Christ's suffering and death? Who is to be admitted, as question 81 asks, to the Lord's table? And who is to be refused? And why? And on what basis do we, do we give our answer? Well, these questions we hope to, to, to begin to answer tonight as we consider our passage from 1 Corinthians 11 verses 27 through 29, and I'd like to read those verses now. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And we're going to consider this passage in conjunction with questions 81 and 82. And we hope to see that attendance 
of the Lord's Supper, partaking of the Lord's Supper, must involve a careful, soul-searching self-examination of our, of our own hearts and our lives to see if there's evidence, evidence of repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, along with a, a desire to live for the Lord, having our faith strengthened and to, to be more and more conformed by, to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we hope to do this by considering our theme tonight, heart-searching self-examination needed for the Lord's Supper. To avoid careless partaking in the first thought, and second, to, to safeguard profitable partaking. As we come to our passage this evening, what was taking place in the Corinthian church was there was a, there was a failure to recognize the unity that ought to exist within the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, his people, those whom he had called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the Corinthian church was demonstrating this, this lack of unity as they were partaking of the Lord's Supper. There were factions within the church of Corinth. And these factions or these divisions revolved around those who had and those who didn't have or had not. This is what Paul addresses in verse 22. He says, What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? It seems that the rich were exerting their influence over the poor and doing so they and they were doing so in the context of the supper of our Lord. Instead of being a supper that was meant to to unite the body of Christ together around the bread and wine which pointed to the 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 suffering and death of Christ which had brought them all into union with him. It was creating, they were partaking in a way that was creating a disunity among the people. And in so doing, they were minimizing, they were minimizing the suffering and death of Christ. They were minimizing the fact that it was his very body, his broken body and his shed blood that had called them all out of darkness into a relationship, into his body. And he had called people from all walks of life, from the rich and the poor, from the Jew and the Gentile, from older ones to younger ones, from the single and the married, from all walks of life. And in response, Paul says to the Corinthian church, what, what shall I say? What should I say? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not, he says. Paul then uses this disunity, this this careless partaking of the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church, he uses it as a as a launching pad, as it were, to instruct the Corinthian church and to instruct us tonight about not only the institution of the Lord's Supper and its meaning and its purpose but also in how we ought to partake. 
how we ought to partake in a way that reflects the, the very gravity of the supper. To reflect what is being remembered and its great significance. How it ought to be a feast where we fellowship with one another as, as, part, as brothers and sisters of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. How it ought to be a feast that is to comfort ourselves. And this can only be enjoyed in right partaking. And so after drawing our attention to the institution and purpose, Paul then comes to our text. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. The key word of this verse is that of that's been translated in our version as unworthily. This word only occurs in this verse and then again in verse 29. And it speaks to the, to the manner in which one was coming to eat the bread and drink the wine. It speaks more to the manner than to, to the worthiness or unworthiness of the person themselves. For in, our, in ourselves, if we look at our own self, no matter who you are, we have to admit there is nothing worthy in us to come and to partake. There's nothing good in us. But Paul here is not drawing attention to the core of our being at this point, but he is drawing attention to the manner that we approach to the table. This text could be translated, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord in a careless manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Careless partaking. Flippant partaking. One that could, that's devoid or empty of any careful self-examination. John Calvin says, to eat unworthily then is to pervert the pure and right use of it by our abuse of it. But what does, what does careless partaking then look like? Well, first, it can be, careless partaking can be that of one who comes to the supper while living in open rebellion and and in persisting in sin and wickedness. And so our form uh, for the administration of the Lord's Supper has that list of, and it says, those defiled with these following sins, those who caught in idol- who are idolaters, those who are praying to others other than the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, those who worship Images, those who are enchanters, diviners, charmers, those who confide in such enchantments, all despisers of God and of his word, all blasphemers, all those who are given to raise discord, sex, and mutiny, those who are divisive people, whether it's in the church or in state, all perjured persons, all all those who are liars, 
all those who are disobedient to their parents or superiors, murderers, contentious persons, those who live in hatred, envy against their neighbors, adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, users, robbers, gamblers, covetous, all who lead offensive lives. Question 82 says, those who are unbelieving and ungodly by their very life and testimony. Such ones should not partake, for in doing so they would come in a, in a very careless, careless manner, and their partaking would be, in a, as it were, an atrocious affront to the, to the Lord and to our Savior. And therefore, they have no right to come and to partake. For in doing so, there would be a, a trivialization of Jesus' suffering and death. And question 82 goes on to explain that it's the responsibility of the church to protect the table, to guard the table, the Christian church, particularly speaking to the leadership of the church. It's their responsibility, the Catechism says, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom till they show amendment of life. For partaking of the t- supper in s- when caught up in sins of this nature in an ongoing way, is an insult to Jesus' suffering and death. But secondly, careless partaking can be done done by those who are not living in open and flagrant sin. As question 81 asks or describes, such as hypocrites or such as who turn not to God with a sincere heart. There may be a knowledge of the scriptures, a historical understanding of the truths of the word, the truths that have not impacted our life, have not impacted the way we think and live, As Calvin says, I don't have a lively feeling of repentance and faith. Such a partaking, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, is careless because it minimizes the suffering and death of Christ. It's careless in the fact it fails to recognize, as we heard this morning, the holiness of God and his his absolute hatred of sin and that he cannot and will not allow sin to come into his presence. It's careless in the sense that it underestimates the significant cost that Jesus paid as he forgave the sins of his people. Namely, he gave his life. He died for sinners. It's careless, it's irreverent, 
It minimizes our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so the suffering and death of our Lord is not something that can be trifled with, dear congregation. And when we fail to prepare ourselves and our hearts, we fail to discern the Lord's body. And in failing to discern, we fail to recognize its sanctity, its beauty, its value. We fail to honor Jesus and what he has accomplished. Fails to discriminate and look at ourselves. We can think of Nadab and Abihu, not in the context of the Lord's Supper, but an example of something where there was a failure to discern. The Lord had instructed, had given very explicit instructions as to what fire could be used in the sacrifices. And Nadab and Abihu, they had brought strange fire into the tabernacle. They, they failed to discern, to recognize the importance of following the Word of God. They failed to discern and understand and recognize the holiness of God. And for their lack of discernment, the Lord brought judgment upon them. And this is what Paul says will be the result of those who do not discern the Lord's body, who eat and drink of the cup in a, in a careless manner. He says they will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ, guilty of trifling with the, the elements that pointed to his suffering and his death. Sometimes familiarity with something breeds a sense of laziness or apathy. Most of us are, are used to, this is an example, most of us are used to the bounties of food and drink in our lives. We, we have it in abundance, and to, if we're full, we, we push the plate away, whether it's empty or not. My grandmother on my mother's side, grew up in the Netherlands, was there during World War II. And as she got older, and she was not able to cook for herself and care for herself, we would go as grandchildren sometime and and share a meal with her. And she would never leave her plate empty because she knew what it was like to go without a meal. And sometimes we are so used to the gospel we have it before us week after week. We, we've seen the Lord's Supper presented before us week or every quarter after every quarter, four times a year, year after year. And it can become familiar. But we cannot, we cannot trivialize and take lightly the Lord's Supper. And so we are called to to come carefully partaking, not in a careless manner. For a lack of discernment and preparation, the Lord says, leads to judgment. Verse 29, 
damnation. In our passage, it could be translated as judgment to himself. It has a judicial overtones where a judge renders one guilty and calls, and it calls for the guilty party to confess. And in that sense, there, there's room. This isn't a final judgment, but it's a call to confess even these sins of partaking lightly before the Lord. To seek for forgiveness of even these sins. Congregation, the point that Paul is drawing your attention to in these passage, this passage is that the finished work of Christ, his suffering and death, is not something to be trivialized, to be taken lightly, to be trifled with. But partaking of the Lord's Supper is serious, it's solemn, and it's blessed activity that the Lord Jesus himself has given to his church so that his people would be edified and grow in their faith, so that they would be strengthened. And so we are called. We're called to discern his body and blood. We're called to discern the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we will now take some time to explore that thought. What does it mean to examine ourselves as Paul calls us to in verse 28? Let a man examine himself. Couched between these two verses of verse 27 and 29 that speak to one partaking unworthily or in a careless manner and its weighty consequences. We find verse 28. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat and drink. Eat that, of that bread and drink of that cup. Let a man examine himself. This word is a command, an imperative in the original. This is not optional. This is something that every believer, every person ought to be doing as they anticipate the supper of our Lord. But what does Paul mean when he says, examine oneself? The original Greek word has two related, very connected definitions it could mean to, to make a critical examination of something on the basis of some rigorous testing. A process of examination, considering, looking, trying to determine. Or it could mean to draw conclusions about the worth of something on the basis of testing. And I think there's a combination of both of these This word is used in the in various contexts in the scriptures. It's used, for instance, to determine whether gold or silver is real. So children, they would take a piece of gold or silver and run it through a series of tests. Is this the real thing? Is this pure gold or is it a fool's gold? A careful process of rigorous testing. To ensure that it's real. 
This word is also used of the farmer in Luke chapter 14, where the farmer, in the context of this, is making an excuse for why he shouldn't come to the supper. And he says, I need to go prove the oxen that I've just purchased. You need to go test, try out, see if it was they were real. He needed to examine them to see if they were what he had really had bought, were what they had lived, were living up to it. And Paul uses this word twice in calling the Corinthian church to to examine themselves, to test themselves, to prove themselves. Here in our verse, let a man examine himself, and then in in chapter. 13 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5, he writes, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. And then here's the word, prove your own self. The word here, prove, demonstrate. Maybe those of you who are in science, in a science class, and you're called to investigate or prove a theorem or, and you create a series of tests or experiments to demonstrate something. It's along these lines of carefully, rigorously demonstrating a point. And Paul calls the people of God, the Church of Jesus Christ, to undergo a critical self-examination to assess our walk with the Lord. To scrutinize oneself. To pursue rigorous and honest self-scrutiny, one commentator says. To assess, to reflect on what one knows of themselves, but also of what one knows of Jesus Christ and his suffering and death for our own hearts and lives personally. This word that Paul uses here implies that there is a standard that one ought to be able to hold up to themselves to see whether they are to come and partake. So what is this standard? What is this standard by which we are to examine ourselves? Well, let's say two things about what it is not first. First, we know that it is not a standard of perfection. Paul or the Lord Jesus Christ are not calling us to look at ourselves to ensure that we have lived perfect lives, free from sin and corruption. For that would be a most unattainable standard. It would defeat the very purpose for the Lord's Supper, which is meant to be a strengthening feast. Where we relish in what Christ has done for soul, for sinners. Friend, if you're looking for perfection, you won't find it in yourself. You can only find that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the one you ought to be looking to and finding your hope in him alone. In your own life, perfection will only be in the life to come, where you will be done away with sin once for all. 
But while we live in this world, we will have to confess again and again and again with the Apostle Paul, the the evil that I would not, that I find myself doing, and the good that I desire to do, I don't do it so often. I don't find myself doing it. So friends, it's not perfection that we're looking for. Second, we can say this examination is not meant to find reasons why you are unworthy. For you will find plenty of those if you are honest with yourself. Yes, this examination will involve a very close look at your own heart and life. And as you examine your own heart and life, you will see how unworthy you are. You will see that you miss the mark in so many ways. But if that's all you focus on, if, if, if that's the only focus of our careful examination, we miss the heart of the Lord's Supper. We miss the Lord Jesus Christ. We miss the one who has given his life to, to cover and to deal with our unworthiness. He gave the supper. He gave himself so that we could be made worthy in him. So then what does self-examination consist of? Well, it needs to be grounded in the Scriptures. It needs to be based off of what the Lord is looking for in those who are to come and remember His suffering and death. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul, Paul gives further clarification when he says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you? Except ye be reprobates. It's an examination that's going to determine, is there faith? And here faith, faith can be used in, in the sense of a broader expansion for conversion. Is there repentance and faith? And these two words we want to look at, repentance and faith, do they exist in our lives? In these two words, we have, as it were, the gauges to assess whether we know something of what the work, of the work of the Lord in our lives. So first, looking at repentance. Repentance, what is it? It's the acknowledgement that I have sinned against the Lord and am truly, in the words of the Catechism, truly sorrowful for these sins and turn to the Lord for refuge and deliverance. This isn't just a, a bare knowledge, head knowledge, that I am a sinner, but that I see sin for what it is. I see sin in terms of how God sees it. As we heard this morning, that it's detestable and ugly and heinous in His sight. I see that in myself, I am, I'm worthy of death. 
unworthy of the least of his mercies. But I not only see my sins, as ugly and condemnable as they are, but I with David cry out, recognizing that it's against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Or we will say as with, with Brockle, we'll perceive within ourselves a hatred and a distaste for sin and grief when we have sinned. But we just don't rest there. We, it also drives us out of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. The dear believer, do you long, do you long to be done with sin? Do you long for sin, the old nature, your flesh, to be done away with, to be crucified? Do you see your sins of seeking pleasure in this world, your lack of heavenly-mindedness, and does it grieve you? Do you see your sins of anger, hurtful words that come out of your mouth against your children or your spouse? And does it burden you? Do you, children, see your sins of disobedient to your parents, And does it weigh you down? Do your covetous thoughts, your proud thoughts, do they convict you? Do you see a lack of conformity to Christ, a lack of holiness in your life? And does it, does it discourage you? Do you long to be free from sin. And if you do, where do you go with these longings? Where do you go with these these desires? Has it driven you to the only one who can and has dealt with sin? Has it driven you to the one who is your only hope? Has it driven you to the Lord Jesus Christ? And has it welled up within you a desire, so, a desire that you would just put away sin, put it off in your life, to be free from it, to kill it, to put it to death? No, not in your own strength, because you can't do it in your own strength but in the strength and the power of Christ. Friend, if you're still allowing sin to persist in your life in one form or another, the Lord calls you to humble yourself. He calls you to see who you really are before Him We need the Spirit to expose us. We need to repent of it with godly sorrow, to strive to live holy lives. But friend, if you desire this sin to be done away with, if you hate it, and it drives you to the only Savior, 
resting in him by faith. And this leads us to our second aspect, which are so integrally connected, faith and repentance. Have you placed your only hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Have you come to see that there is forgiveness to be found in Christ alone? Has his death on the cross, as ugly and horrendous as it physically was, become something exceedingly precious to you? Have you come to see that apart from his suffering and death, that your sins could never be forgiven? Have you, with the catechism, acknowledged that you trust that these, your sins, are forgiven for the sake of Christ? No, not just a mere knowledge that Jesus died for sinners, but a knowledge that you hold for truth and have a confidence that Jesus' blood has cleansed you from all your sins. Not a confidence in your faith, but a confidence in Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. Now there may be maybe those here who are who are trembling and with uncertainty. Is it really real? Did I really come? And have I been forgiven? Maybe you're like that woman with the issue of blood who sneaked up behind Jesus through the crowd and, and as it were, just if I could just but touch the hem of his garment. Have you touched the hem of his garment? Or maybe you're like the father who, who had brought his son to Jesus. He knew that there was healing to be found in Jesus Christ and he cried out for that. And Jesus says, do you believe that I can? That I am able. And he said, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. You cannot do without Christ. But yet there seems to be so much sin, so much unbelief. But yet you have to go to him. It's a faith that is also exercised in, in, and expressed in desires of the soul, a desire to have lives that are more holy, a desire to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Is it your cry with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease? Does the echo of your heart echo Paul's desire to be done with sin and be to, to be more conformed to the image of Christ? Do you have the desire to love Christ more and to hate sin more? Do you desire, despite your weakness, to partake of the supper? Because it directs your attention to Jesus Christ and Him alone. This understanding of my own sin and misery or the forgiveness of my sins or the desire of to live with greater holiness 
These are not natural desires in the human heart, in the mind. These are desires that have been placed by the Spirit of Christ as he works in the hearts and lives of sinners. And yes, there will be weaknesses and inconsistencies in our lives. We will not be free from sin and misery in this life. And Kevin DeYoung says this supper is for those with continued weaknesses, who, although they are seriously flawed, desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Friend, if you know something, something of the weakness of your own heart and mind and life, if you know something of who you are as a sinner before a holy and a majestic and a glorious God, if you know something of your, of your need to flee to Jesus again and again, if you know something of this warfare between the, the, our, our flesh and the new man or the old and the new man, and the word of God says, no commands you to come and eat and drink. John Calvin says, If you aspire after the righteousness of God with the earnest desire of your mind and humbled under the view of your misery and do wholly lean upon Christ's grace and rest upon it, knowing that you know that you are a worthy guest to approach that table. Worthy, I mean, in respect, in this respect, that the Lord does not exclude you. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. This imperative, this command to examine ourselves is followed by two more commands, to eat and to drink. For the Lord desires, the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ desires to commune with his needy and weak people so that he can strengthen our faith, so that he can he can commune with us through the supper. He desires that his people, as weak as they are, unworthy as they are in themselves, come and set apart a time to remember him through the eating of bread and wine. He desires that his people come and enjoy fellowship and communion with him and with fellow believers, as they eat and drink. So if you know something, something of the Lord's work in your life, of of your sin, its ugliness, its heinousness, of Christ's willingness to cover the greatest sinners, of your desire, of a desire to put, to be done away with sin and to live more and more holy lives. He calls you to come and eat at his supper. 
My friend, if you have never experienced any of these things in your own heart and life, if you have not sorrowed over sin, if you don't have a confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ to cover your sins, if you don't have a desire to live more and more for the Lord, and he calls you to stay away, For partaking in such a manner would be careless and a failure to discern the Lord's body. And friend, if this is you, you're really in a hard spot because Jesus Christ has commanded you to come and repent and believe. He's called, he's commanded all to remember him. And yet you can't because you're not in him. But he comes to you tonight, to all of us, and says there is a way back to the Father through me. There is mercy to be found in me. There is abundant mercy. And he says to you today, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, but turn to me and repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Gracious, soul-searching Lord of the heavens and of the earth. Lord, we've been called to search our own hearts and our own lives. Lord, to determine, do we know something of our own sin and misery, of our own, of deliverance that is found in Christ Jesus alone, of the desire to live more and more for Thee? Do we know Thee? And Holy Spirit, we do pray that as thy people examine their hearts and lives, that thou wouldst be testifying with our spirits, with thy people, that they are the children of God. And Lord, do draw even those who sit in the shadows, as it were, maybe fearing what other people might think, Doubting, wondering, is it really true? We pray that they would come and remember this, the, the supper of our Lord, remembering his suffering and death for such ones as we are. Lord, bless thy word. And be with us now as we, as we take up our callings this week, as we go about our daily tasks. We pray that our lives would be that of one of desiring to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.